Welcome to The Modern Scholar, where great professors teach you. My name is George Wilson, and I'll be your host. Today we begin a course entitled Six Months That Changed the World, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Your professor is Margaret Macmillan, provost of Trinity College, University of Toronto, and professor of history. While an undergraduate at Trinity herself, Professor Macmillan earned an honors B.A. in history. She completed her work at Oxford University, where she was awarded a Ph.D. in history. In addition to her teaching and administrative duties, Professor Macmillan currently serves on the boards of the Canadian Institute of International Affairs, the Churchill Society for Parliamentary Democracy, and the Atlantic Council of Canada. She has written numerous articles and book reviews for both scholarly and non-scholarly publications. Her own books include works entitled Women of the Raj, published in 1998, and the highly acclaimed Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, which is the recipient of three prestigious literary awards, the Duff Cooper Prize, the Penn Hessel Tiltman Prize for History, and the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction. Her most recent work is entitled Parties Long Estranged, Canada and Australia in the 20th Century. Dr. Macmillan appears frequently in the media commenting on both history and current international relations. In the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, World War I, the Great War, came to a close. It had been the bloodiest conflict the modern world had ever seen. In January of 1919, world leaders from every corner of the globe assembled in Paris to sort out what everyone hoped would be a just and lasting peace. Never before had the world witnessed a global international conference on such a scale. For six months, the peacemakers faced paramount issues as the world's problems came before them. They soon discovered that making peace is almost as difficult as fighting war. To understand what happened in Paris in 1919 is to understand the modern world. It is no stretch to assert that the decisions made during the Paris Peace Conference impacted every individual who lived in the 20th century. Those six months did, indeed, change the world. In fact, they continue to have repercussions to this very day. For more information on this lecture, please visit the course's webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and, yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin... Six Months That Changed the World, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Lecture 1, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. And now, Professor Macmillan. Welcome to this course of 14 lectures on the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. In my view, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 is one of the most important events of the 20th century and is absolutely essential if you want to understand the history of both the 20th and the 21st centuries. I hope at the end of this course of lectures that you will agree with me. We often think of the Paris Peace Conference, if we think of it at all, as dealing just with the treaty with Germany, the Treaty of Versailles. In fact, a number of histories 
even talk about the Versailles Conference, which in fact it wasn't. It was a very large peace conference which took place at the end of the First World War in Paris. The treaty with Germany, which was one of the defeated nations in the First World War, was signed at Versailles, a suburb of Paris. And so that's why we often think that that's what the conference was all about. Well, it was. It was about making peace with Germany, and the Treaty of Versailles was a very important treaty. Some people, I think they're wrong, but quite a few people have blamed that treaty for causing the Second World War. They argue that the terms given to Germany were so harsh that Germany resented it, and that fueled the rise of Hitler and the Nazis, who were committed, of course, to breaking the terms of that treaty and undoing the what they felt were unjust provisions. That, of course, is an important part of the Paris Peace Conference, but it is by no means all. Let me just give you some idea of what else is involved in that peace conference. The peace conference marks a number of things. The United States was participating there. This period really marks the rise of the United States to world power. It is not yet the dominant world power, but in 1919 it is beginning to play a part in the world unlike any part it has played before. In Paris also you had representatives of Japan. Again, Japan is now beginning to play a part in world affairs, and the 1919 conference marks a moment when Japan begins to exercise its power as not just an Asian power, but as a world power. Not only is the Paris Peace Conference important for what it signifies, it is important for what it dealt with. Let me just give you some idea of the agenda that came before the people who met in Paris in 1919 to try and make peace. They were dealing with defeated nations, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, Ottoman Turkey, drawing up treaties for them, but they were also trying to sort out boundaries in the center of Europe because what had happened at the end of the war was that Austria-Hungary had collapsed, and so suddenly there was a huge amount of territory and all sorts of demands on that territory which had to be sorted out. And so a very important part of what they were doing in Paris was drawing boundaries. In effect, what they were doing were creating or recognizing new countries, or in some cases, such as Poland, recognizing countries that had had been reborn. But they weren't just dealing with Europe. Again, this is a common misunderstanding. The peace conference was also dealing with the Middle East. So much of what has happened in the Middle East since 1919 really has its origins in decisions made in Paris in 1919. Huge amounts of territory in the Middle East were up for grabs, and that was because the Ottoman Empire, which had controlled much of the Arab Middle East, had collapsed. What was going to happen to all that territory? Britain and France put in claims to it and, in fact, were going to be at least temporarily successful. What also happened in 1919 and immediately afterwards were that countries were created in what had been simply a series of provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And so the countries we see in the Middle East today are products of the Peace Conference of 1919. Iraq was created by the British, made up of three provinces of the former Ottoman Empire, containing peoples who had very little in common with each other. Iraq was created as a convenience for the British. The British really had no idea that it would become a problem to them, which it it very rapidly did. And Iraq has gone on being a problem because what you got there were borders being drawn around a people or peoples who didn't have much in common, who didn't particularly like each other in many cases. And so Iraq has been, since its inception, a turbulent country, a country searching for an identity, a problem not just to its own people, but a problem often to its neighbors. Many of its neighbors were also created at the Paris Peace Conference and immediately afterwards. Jordan came into existence as a result of decisions made in Paris. 
Syria, Lebanon, both came into existence again as a result of decisions made in Paris. And very, very important, and I think this is something that a lot of people will be interested in, Israel, the Jewish state in the Middle East, got its origins in this period because the British gave their consent and their approval to the establishment of a Jewish homeland in what was then called Palestine. Palestine was going to turn into, in 1948, the state of Israel. And that, again, has gone on affecting the internal relations of the Middle East and, again, has also affected the world as a whole. And so, in this course of lectures, yes, of course, we're going to look at Germany because that is a very important part of what was done. But we're also going to look at so much else. Now, the problem with the peace conference, and there are many problems, but the problem for us is how to study it because it's not all that easy to make clear sense of it. The people who sat there in Paris were dealing with hundreds, sometimes dozens of topics at the same time. And so you'd have the major councils of the peace conference dealing perhaps with Poland's borders, dealing with the Jewish homeland in Palestine, dealing with economic issues, dealing with relations between, say, Romania and Hungary, all on the same day. Now, if we try and do that, I think we'll all get ourselves thoroughly confused. And so the way I'm going to set out this course of lectures is I'm going to start by looking at the world of 1919, because unless we understand that world, we won't understand the context. If you're going to understand decisions made in the past, you're going to have to understand what it is that people then were dealing with. And so we're going to look at the impact of the First World War. We're going to look at some of the new forces unleashed in part by that war which were raging through Europe. And we're going to look in particular about revolutionary forces set off by the revolution in Russia in 1917, but forces which were continuing to rise in Europe and which threatened to carry away much of the old European structure. We're also going to look at the forces of ethnic nationalism. These again were forces which weren't, un weren't created by the First World War but were certainly stimulated by it. And these are forces which, in many cases, at least the ethnic national forces, we're still dealing with today. In addition to looking at the context, which, of course, is, is a very important part of what we have to do, we're going to look at the peacemakers themselves, their ideas, their interests, their biases, because these are human beings, and we have to always remember that history is made by human beings, and they are affected, of course, by their own times, but they have their own ideas about how they, in turn, are going to affect their times. And so we'll look, in particular, at the three most important men in Paris whose decisions and whose attitudes were going to make such an important difference to the peace settlements. We're going to look at the American president, Woodrow Wilson, who brought what was perhaps the greatest idea of all to Paris, the idea that there should be a League of Nations and a new type of diplomacy in the world, a new way of organizing the international order, a better way, he firmly believed, and a lot of people agreed with him. We're going to look at Georges Clemenceau, the French prime minister, because France in those days still counted as a major world power. We're going to look at how Clemenceau worried, as many French people did, about Germany, about the power of Germany in the future, and how he tried to protect France. We're also going to look at David Lloyd George, the British prime minister, who was prime minister not just of Britain, but head of the biggest empire the world had ever seen, the British Empire. And in those days, Britain was considered the major world power. We, we tend to forget that, but we have to remember that in 1919, Britain and the British Empire were seen still as the dominant power in the world. So we'll look at the individuals. They are, of course, affected by the, their countries. They bring their own national interests, their own national biases. But at times, they behave just as other individuals do. They allow their own 
prejudices, their own likes and dislikes, to affect the decisions they make. As we go through, we'll look at a number of very important topics, because these are the topics that the peacemakers themselves had to deal with. We'll look at the League of Nations, this new international body that was created out of the Paris Peace Conference, a forerunner of the United Nations. When they met in Paris, they had a great many items on their agenda, and they often had to deal with them simultaneously. And so they'd meet and they'd talk about perhaps Russia in the morning and Poland in the afternoon. Now, we can't follow the way they did it, because I think we'd all get ourselves thoroughly confused. And so what I want to do in this course of lectures is look at it by theme. And so I want to start with looking at the context, the world of 1919, and some of the forces that the peacemakers were going to have to deal with in that world. The expectations of, of many people around the world for a better world, a, a peace that was really going to last, but also forces such as revolution, unleashed by the Russian Revolution of 1917, and the very powerful forces of ethnic nationalism. Those are very important things to understand as part of the context. We'll look at the peacemakers themselves, in particular the three most powerful men, the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, the Prime Minister of France, George Clemenceau, and the Prime Minister of Great Britain, David Lloyd George, because their national interests and the pressures on them and their ideas and views and biases are a very important part of the whole peace process. We're then going to look at the League of Nations, because negotiating the League of Nations was one of the most important things the peacemakers did in Paris. We're going to look, of course, at the German peace. Any course of lectures on the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 cannot ignore the German peace, that peace which is so controversial, which was regarded by many people, even today, as being responsible for the Second World War. We're going to look at questions like that. Was the peace with Germany so harsh that it led to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis and led, therefore, to the war which started in 1939? We're going to look at Central Europe, because with the collapse of Austria-Hungary, a whole lot of borders had to be redrawn. New countries were going to appear in the center of Europe, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, an old country which hadn't existed for a century. Poland was going to be reborn. And so we're going to spend some time looking at that. But we're not just going to look at Europe, because the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 was a conference that affected the world. And so we're going to spend some time looking at the Middle East. A very important part of the peace settlements dealt with the Middle East dealt with the Arab territories which had belonged to the Ottoman Empire. And out of those territories, the peacemakers were going to create new countries. They were going to create Syria. They were going to create Lebanon. They were going to create Jordan. They were going to create Iraq. And think how, think how much all of this has mattered right down to the present day. Iraq was, was brought together out of three provinces of the Ottoman Empire. It contained peoples who had not all that much in common, who didn't think of themselves as being Iraqis. And Iraq has been a turbulent country ever since. Also in the Middle East, in the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, we get the foundations for the Jewish homeland in what was then called Palestine being laid. Israel came into existence in 1948, but it came into existence in large part because of decisions made in Paris in 1919. And we don't just look at the Middle East. We also look at Asia. We look at China which had very, very strong demands in Paris, which didn't get what it wanted, and as a result began to turn in a much more radical direction. And we look at Japan, a Japan which brought hopes to Paris. Some of those hopes were dashed, and Japan itself moved in a different direction down a road which eventually took it to the Second World War. At the end, we're going to come back, and we're going to try and sum all this extraordinary peace conference up and see what did it mean? We're going to ask ourselves that question because it is a very important question. 
Was it perhaps a forerunner of what a world government would look like? Because when you think back, there you had in Paris for six months some of the most powerful people in the world dealing with some of the great issues in the world of then and some of the great issues which are still in, in our world of today. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at how relevant it is to understand the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 for understanding the present. I'm an historian, and I have a bias, of course, but my view is that understanding history is enormously important if you want to understand the present world. If you want to get a handle on the present world, you have to know what it is that created it, and you have to know what it is that people are remembering. If you want to, if you want to understand peoples today, if you want to understand, for example, why there is considerable amount of resentment in the Middle East towards what they call the West, then you have to remember, as people in the Middle East do, what it was that happened to the Middle East in 1919. A lot of people in the Middle East haven't forgotten the ways in which the Middle East was treated at the end of the First World War. And so history and knowing what other peoples are remembering, I think, is an enormously important tool in helping us to understand the present world. It's not going to predict the future, but it will give us some hope that we can deal with the future. And so the Peace Conference of 1919, with the long shadows that it cast down over the decades, I think, and I hope you will agree at the end, is a very important way of understanding our world today. Now, before we begin the course, and since we still have some time in this lecture, what I want to do is look at World War I, because that war, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, had an enormous impact on Europe. And so when the peacemakers met in Paris, they were dealing with the consequences of that war. The awful thing about the First World War, which I think people have now come to realize, is that it may have been a mistake. War had been expected in Europe for a number of years before 1914, but everyone was, I think, surprised in the summer of 1914 when Europe slid into war. There were a series of decisions, in some cases miscalculations, and suddenly Europe found itself in a general war by the beginning of August 1914. The series of events started in June when the heir to the Austrian throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated at Sarajevo in what was then part of the Austrian Empire. He was assassinated probably by Serb nationalists supported by the small country of Serbia. Austria, Austria-Hungary to give it its proper name, was fed up with Serbia. They regarded the Serbs as a menace. There were a number of Serbs within Austria-Hungary and a number of Croatians who were in many ways close to the Serbs. And what the Austrians feared is that Serbia would act as a magnet to their own Serbs and Croatians and pull them out of the empire. And that would have been the end of the empire. And so when their heir was assassinated, the Austrian government saw an opportunity to squash a menacing little country which menaced the very existence of Austria-Hungary. Austria checked with Germany, its ally, and said, look, if we go against Serbia, will you support us? And the German government said in what has come to be known as the blank check, fine, go ahead. And so Austria more or less forced Serbia into war, giving Serbia conditions which Serbia could not possibly accept. As Austria moved against Serbia with the support of Germany, Russia, which was a supporter of Serbia's and an enemy of both Austria-Hungary and Germany, announced that it would defend Serbia. And so what you began to get was a crisis, which started between Austria and Hungary, now drawing in other countries, in this case Germany and Russia. As Russia began to move and began to mobilize its troops to defend Serbia, 
Germany began to mobilize its troops to defend itself against Russia. When Germany mobilized, it also began to mobilize against Russia's ally. This all sounds rather confusing, but what you really have is a series of sort of chain reactions. Uh, Germany's ally, Germany began to mobilize against Russia's ally, France. And so something which started off in a small way suddenly by the beginning of August threatened a major European war. Germany decided to attack France and fight a holding action against Russia. To attack France, it had to go through Belgium. Belgium, a neutral country, was therefore invaded by Germany, and that brought Britain in. And so by the 4th of August 1914, Europe was in a general war. Most people thought that the war would be over by Christmas. People went off to war. A whole high school class from a French high school went off and said to their families, we'll see you at Christmas. Not one of them was alive by Christmas of 1914. The war turned into a stalemate on the Western Front. It dragged on until the fall of 1918. And as it dragged on, it consumed huge numbers of lives and tremendous numbers of resources. People began to talk of total war, and that indeed was what it became. As the war went on, it dragged in more countries, and we'll look at some of those. As it dragged on, too, not surprisingly, it also produced increasingly large war aims. If you're going to spend that much on a war, you want to get something out of it. Let me now look at who was on which side. On the one side, you had the Allies, the British Empire, because Britain, you must always remember, was part of a much larger empire. And so not only British troops fought in France, but you had Canadian troops, Australian troops, Indian troops, troops from places like New Zealand and Newfoundland. British Empire, France, Russia. They were later joined by Japan and Italy, funnily enough, because in the Second World War, those two countries were on the other side. But Japan was an ally of Britain's, in fact, and Italy came into the war because it thought it would get certain advantages. And then several other smaller European nations, Greece, Romania, uh, for example, came in as well. On the other side were the, what were called generally the central powers, that is Germany and Austria-Hungary, and they in turn were joined by the Ottoman Empire and by Bulgaria. As the war dragged on, the strain of the war became almost too much for those fighting it, and one by one, the weaker countries in particular began to be shaken by internal disturbances and revolution. In 1917, Russia, which was in many ways the weakest of all the great powers, had a series of revolutions which culminated in October 1917 when a very small faction of communists, that's the name they were later on going to give themselves, but in those days they were known as the Bolsheviks, very small faction seized power. A lot of people hadn't even heard of them. Bolsheviks seized power and they were going to remain in power until the beginning of the 1990s as the Russian communists. Their leader was a great revolutionary, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. He immediately, once he had seized power, decided to get Russia out of the war. Russia could no longer go on, and so he sued for peace with Germany, and in March 1918 signed a treaty at a Polish city called Brest-Litovsk. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was very, very important. It gave Germany and Austria-Hungary, to a lesser extent, access to huge Russian resources, what it also did, of course, was free up German troops so that they could move westwards to the Western Front and put pressure on the Allied lines. The Allies were terrified of what might happen. They were frightened as well that Bolshevism, as they called it in those days, would spread across Europe. What really saved the Allies was that as Russia was dropping out, another power was preparing to come in. In 1917, the United States entered the war on the Allied side. 
Now, the Americans had not been particularly enthusiastic about the war. American opinion was divided. In the United States, there were, in fact, large numbers of Irish who didn't have much reason to love the British. And there were also considerable numbers of Germans living in the United States or descendants of Germans. In the end, the United States came in, partly, I think, because American public opinion began to see the Allies as representing democratic values and the central powers as representing non-democratic values, also because the Germans themselves were inept. The German high command, recognizing that the United States was giving Britain a lot of supplies for the war, decided to try and cut those supply lines, and that meant sinking merchant shipping. Since a lot of the merchant shipping was American, it meant that the Germans began to sink American ships, and the Americans, understandably, got rather annoyed about this. Then, in 1917, right at the beginning of 1917, while they were attacking American shipping, the Germans also sent a request or or a suggestion to Mexico, saying to the Mexican government, and this was all done secretly, saying to the Mexican government, would you like to attack the United States in the South, seize back some of the territory which Mexico has always regarded as perhaps properly Mexican, New Mexico, Texas, and so on, and we will support you. The telegram was intercepted by the British, who had intercepted the cables on which the Germans were sending their cables across, their, their telegrams across the Atlantic, and the British, of course, passed it on to the Americans. And so a combination of sympathy for the Allies, irritation and fury at the Germans sinking their ships, and then this offer to Mexico in what was known as the Zimmermann telegram after the German foreign minister who sent it, persuaded the United States, and in particular persuaded its president, Woodrow Wilson, that the United States should enter the war on the Allied side. The United States, however, had a very particular motive for coming into the war. It wanted to spread democracy. It wanted to build a better world. It did not want anything for itself, and the Americans were going to make this very, very clear indeed. In fact, they refused even to consider themselves as an ally. The United States was always officially known as an associate. Once the Americans had come into the war, although it took time for American troops to get across to Europe because the United States had to basically create an army, train it, and ship it across the Atlantic, the central powers were on the defensive. The end of the war came as American troops were pouring in increasing numbers into Europe in the summer of 1918. At the beginning of August, the German lines in the West were broken, and lines which had moved at most a kilometer or half a kilometer for almost four years suddenly began to move very, very rapidly indeed. The Germans moved back 60 kilometers, 80 kilometers, closer and closer to the German borders. By September, Germany's allies were beginning to drop away. Bulgaria, the smallest of the German allies, began to fall to pieces. It asked for an armistice. Austria-Hungary, which had been pretty shaky to begin with, simply reached the point where it couldn't fight on. It was facing economic and social disintegration, and by the fall of 1918, its various nationalities were beginning to demand independence. In the first week of October, Austria-Hungary also asked for an armistice. German armies continued to suffer defeats through August and September, and on October the 3rd, the German government sent a cable to President Wilson asking for an armistice. This cable, which was all done publicly, it was printed in the papers, started a series of negotiations which finally resulted in the armistice of November the 11th, the day we still celebrate as Remembrance Day. The whole process of the armistice with Germany, you should remember this for later on, 
was going to give rise to a series of disagreements about what the armistice actually meant. Germany was going to argue that it had surrendered to President Wilson, not to the other allies, on the understanding that they would be treated with a fair and compassionate peace. And the Germans were later on going to complain that this implicit promise, it was never an explicit promise, was not kept. The Ottoman Empire also, which was also by now falling to pieces, also asked for an armistice. And so by November 11th, 1918, the war was over. The war was over, but the peace was something that looked very, very troubled indeed. Europe was a deeply troubled continent at the end of the war. Not only had the war done tremendous damage, the loss of life, which I've already talked about, but now the influenza epidemic, the dreadful epidemic of 1918-1919 began to carry off Europeans, many of whom were weakened by lack of proper food. Some 20 million people around the world, as many as were killed in the war, were going to be killed in that economic, in, in that influenza epidemic. More than that, in many parts of Europe, there was quite simply social and economic collapse. In Central Europe, a lot of the railways stopped running because there was no one really to coordinate them anymore. Supplies no longer were getting through. And so you got cities such as Vienna, where people were very, very close to starvation. In some cases, they were starving. Aid workers who began to move in reported dreadful stories of children dying of starvation, old people being carried off, people eating horrible food substitutes, eating sawdust, eating wood chips, anything to assuage their hunger. There was fear of more revolution as people sank into deeper and deeper misery in parts of Europe, and there were indeed signs that it might be happening. What also began to happen to Europe was that in many parts of Europe, ethnic nationalism, and this is something I'm going to come back to because it's a very, very important force, was beginning to ride high as well. The collapse of so many of the old power structures meant that peoples who had felt themselves to be oppressed suddenly saw a chance to become independent. And so when the peacemakers, as we should call the people who came to Paris for this enormous conference, came, they brought not only their own agendas, and these were very important agendas, but they also brought tremendous pressure. They were under pressure from their own publics and under pressure from world opinion. The pressures weren't always rational, they weren't always sensible. Publics around the world asked for a better world, but they also asked for revenge, and these two things didn't always go well together. But it was to be a very, very important factor. The Peace Conference of 1919 was one of the first major international gatherings to take place in such public scrutiny. Over 700 journalists came to Paris from countries all over the world, and they reported back to their own peoples. They sent stories home, and in turn, they reported on opinion at home. And since almost all the world leaders who came to Paris to make peace came from democratic countries, or at least countries with some form of democracy, they had to worry about voters back home. They had to worry about winning the next election. They had to, in other words, listen to what public opinion was saying. Well, what was public opinion saying? I've, I've said it was contradictory, and it was. On the one hand, there were these demands for punishment and for retribution. And it's understandable. The war had been so dreadful and so wasteful and so appalling and its consequences so dreadful to deal with that there was a widespread and, I think, very human feeling that someone should pay for the damage and someone or some people should be punished for starting it. In Britain, for example, in December 1918, there was an election, general election, and the government, the governing coalition of the time, started off actually rather moderate and talked about domestic issues, talked about the sorts of things that 
governments think that people like to hear about. And they found that domestic issues, talking about better housing, didn't really do all that much. It was when they began talking about making the Germans pay, squeezing Germany, as one of them, one, one government minister said, squeezing Germany until the pip squeak. Well, that began to go down very well. And so what democratic governments were finding was when they talked about punishment, when they talked about retribution, these were things that went down quite well with their own electorates. And that was true in Britain. It was also true in France. And, and again, very understandable. I mean, the French point of view was, in a way, a very simple and, and a very understandable one. The French point of view was that we didn't, we the French didn't start the war. It was Germany that declared war on us. The war was fought on French soil, and that's where most of the damage occurred, or occurred in Belgium as well. And why should we pay for it? As one French newspaper said, why should the French taxpayer pay? The French taxpayer had not caused the damage, had not wanted the damage, had not started the war. It was the German taxpayer in the views of the French, and who can blame them for thinking so? Who should pay for it? So there was these, these demands for retribution, talk of bringing the Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany to trial. He was widely reviled in the West and among the Allies. He was seen as someone who was responsible for the war, and so there was talk of trying him. At the same time, though, as there were these demands for retribution, these demands for punishment, there were also a whole other set of demands for a better world. And again, I think it's perfectly understandable. People had not gone through this war and not seen this level of suffering and not seen this outpouring of blood and this expenditure of national wealth to think that it was all for nothing. And so there was a tremendous hope that somehow, out of this appalling conflict, out of this appalling four years, the world would become a better place. Europeans felt this, Americans felt this, Canadians felt it, people around the world felt it. And so when the peacemakers came to Paris, they had a tremendous burden on them. I mean, it was a burden of expectations. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, understood this. As he came to Europe, he came across by boat, of course, because in those days you, you traveled by boat. He said to someone on, on board, he said, he said, I worry, he said, there is this tremendous burden of expectations on me. And he said, I foresee an agony of disappointment if we don't meet them all. And one of the great problems that the peacemakers were going to have in Paris was that there was no way they could meet all the expectations, whether those expectations for punishment and retribution or those expectations for a better world. There was also another factor which I think we should keep in mind because it's a very, very important factor. We tend to assume that the heads of powerful nations have a great deal of power. And yes, they do. There's a great deal they can do. They often control enormous armed forces. They control enormous wealth in many cases. But power is a tricky thing. It is not always easy to exercise. No matter how powerful you are, you have to actually be able to project that power. You have to be able to use it. And in fact, the power they had in Paris, those peacemakers in Paris, was, I would argue, much more limited than people at the time, or in fact, people since, have thought. To begin with, they were dealing with forces such as Bolshevism and ethnic nationalism, which were very, very difficult to contain. It's very difficult to deal with revolutionary forces. We've seen it in our own time. People, when they're motivated by hopes of a better world or motivated by religious fervor, are not always easy to deal with. 
And in many parts of Europe, you now had people who were either motivated by hopes of building a better world on Earth or by hopes of getting their own state for their own people. And those are very powerful forces, and they were very difficult to contain for the peacemakers in 1919. They've been, in fact, very difficult to contain ever since. There were other problems, too. The peacemakers' power was, in fact, shrinking. They had, yes, they had enormous armies, but those armies were being demobilized. There was no way that the British government or the French government or the Canadian government could keep thousands and millions of men in uniform. It was too expensive. Their own taxpayers were beginning to grumble. There was simply no way they could do it. And the men themselves wanted to go home. Increasingly, what you were getting were mutterings and murmurings within the armed forces in Europe. The French army had, in fact, been shattered in the First World War. In 1917, there'd been a series of mutinies in the French army, and it never really was to be the same after that. The French fleet, which had not mutinied during the war, was, in fact, going to mutiny in the spring, or a very important section of it was going to mutiny in the spring of 1919. In the British armed forces, there were troubles, there were murmurings, there were riots, there were grumblings. Canadian soldiers rioted um, in their base in North Wales because they wanted to go home and they felt they were being delayed. And so, for various reasons, partly to do with financial um, exigencies, partly because they simply could no longer afford it, but partly also to deal with what they knew was the discontent of their own soldiers, the Allied powers demobilized their armies very, very rapidly. And so by the summer of 1919, they had a third of the troops that they had had in November 1918. And could they use those remaining troops? It wasn't at all clear that they could. There are two final factors which limited the power of the peacemakers. There was their own reluctance to see any more bloodshed. In November 1918, there was in fact a debate. Should the Allies accept the German demand for an armistice and stop the war, or should they actually go into Germany and occupy it? And we'll come back to this, because it was going to be very important in the later peacemaking. The only general who wanted to go into Germany who was prepared to accept more bloodshed was the American general, General John Pershing. The other generals, the Allied generals, had already seen four years of bloodshed, and they simply were not prepared to pay that price. Pershing was not bloodthirsty. It was rather that he led troops who were fresh, and the United States had not taken those sorts of losses that the Europeans had taken. And so the peacemakers themselves were very, very reluctant to use troops in ways which would cost any more lives. Finally, and this is also an important factor, there had been so much disruption in Europe, partly caused by the war itself, but partly caused by the political upheavals at the end of the war, that in fact it was very difficult to move troops around. In many cases, if there were the railway lines, they sent, there simply weren't the locomotives or the carriages or the fuel to move them around. The ports weren't always usable. And so what you get again and again in Paris is the peacemakers sitting there and they're debating something and a report comes in and the Romanians have just attacked the Hungarians over in the center of Europe and the peacemakers, the big, the big powerful men, say this is dreadful, we must tell the Romanians to stop. And there's a lot of debate and they conclude that they can't really do very much, they haven't got the troops to send and they don't know how to get them there. And so often what they say is, we've got the solution, we'll send them a telegram. Well, that's not really exercising and projecting power in any very effective way. And so what we have to remember 
when we look back at the Paris Peace Conference is the context in which it took place. It's very easy in history, and I think we all do it, to look back and say, well, they should have done this, they should have done that. Why didn't they foresee what was going to happen? We, of course, know how the story turns out. We know in the case of the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 that there has been criticism of it. The decisions have often been blamed for causing all sorts of troubles up to and including the Second World War. But in fact, what we must try and understand is what the peacemakers were actually dealing with. We have to try and understand their circumstances. We don't have to do everything they would have done. We don't have to sympathize with everything they would have done. But what we have to understand is that their ability to make decisions was very much constrained by their circumstances. It was constrained by the world in which they found themselves, this very disturbed world of 1919, constrained by the pressures on them from their own public, from the press, constrained by these conflicting demands on them, the demands for retribution, the demands for a better world, and constrained by the limits on their own power and their own inability to deal with some of the forces that were now rampaging unchecked through Europe such as Bolshevism and ethnic nationalism. Well, what we're going to be doing in the next lecture in this course is looking at the peacemakers themselves. Who were the men? And again, it was mainly men, although we'll find that there were a couple of, of women there who played a very important role, but mainly men in those days. Who were the men who came to Paris and who were the really important ones? There were four really important ones at the core of the peace conference, the prime ministers of Britain, France, and Italy, and, of course, the President of the United States, each of them brought his own national agenda. Each country had its own requirements, had its own wishes, had its own views on what the world should be like. And, of course, they were also individuals. One of the fascinating things about the Paris Peace Conference is the way in which the general circumstances, the general work, the general concrete circumstances with which the peacemakers were dealing, meet up with the peacemakers themselves, because one of the fascinating things about history is the way in which individuals and the more general forces intersect. And what you got in Paris were, yes, people representing their countries, people dealing with the circumstances of the time, but you also got individuals. You got individuals who had likes and dislikes, and all those factors were going to go into making these very important peace settlements. This ends Lecture 1.